0: Ultimately, I think what was exposed was a fundamental incompat- incompatibility, uh, not just between the eurozone and uh, you know acceptable levels of growth and employment in Italy, but also between the eurozone and um, democracy, uh, especially. And uh, and people are becoming increasingly aware of that. And um, and I think you know there's uh, you know the, the contradictions have come to the fore. And so at this point, you know, I mean, all the all the establishment can do is, is buy some time and. Uh, Maybe try to uh, suspend a, um, democracy, you know, as much as as much and as long as they can, but uh, it won't last forever.
1: Wait, so this is, this thing's called oh, the economics of exit. Oh, can we have BR in brackets? No, 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 no. Brackets are postmodern and should be done away with.
2: So uh, I had to I once taught a course which was um, open bracket re slash d.
1: Close brackets. Open brackets yes. Close brackets. Question mark. <laughs> Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. What comes next? Well, this week we're talking with the Italian author and journalist Thomas Fazzi on the economics of the European Union and the Eurozone, and what to do about it. In particular, we'll be talking to Thomas about an article he published in Jacobin with his frequent collaborator Bill Mitchell, which provoked a tremendously hostile response from the left. Why is a critique of the European Union still so controversial amongst progressives? I'm Alex Hochili. This week, Phil Cunliffe will be leading the interview with contributions also from George Hoare.
3: Thomas Fazzi is an Italian journalist, author of several books, and a frequent collaborator with the Australian economist Bill Mitchell, who is the founder of Modern Monetary Theory. We'll be talking with Thomas a little more about his work with Bill Mitchell too. But some months back, Thomas wrote an article for the U.S. magazine Jacobin, which sparked off a storm of criticism. And that article and the controversies that it raised, that article is going to be the centerpiece of the show, um, talking about the European Union and the left's attitudes towards it. Um, But first, a warm welcome to Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
3: Before we talk about the EU and your critique of it, Thomas, um, the one published in Jacobin, tell us a little bit about your background first. How long have you worked as a journalist?
0: Okay, so um, I've been writing about economic and European issues uh, on an almost full-time basis now uh, for about, I would say, six, seven years. Um, so my, so I started writing really at the heart of the, uh, the heart of the euro crisis. Uh, I've always had an interest in economics. Even though I'm largely a self-taught economist, um, the explosion of the financial crisis and then the uh, arrival of the euro debt crisis uh, really renewed my interest in economics um, because I realised that even though I'd always been involved in uh, politics and specifically left politics, um, uh, and so I consider myself quite uh, um, quite you know well-read when it comes to politics. I still had uh, trouble understanding what was really happening um, at the time and. Yeah, I came to the conclusion that that was because, like many leftists, unfortunately, I tended over the years to disregard economics uh, and to see it as an almost separate issue from politics. Um, and so I really started uh, brushing up on my economics and studying again, and the result of that was my first book, The Battle for Europe, which uh, looks at the, the causes, uh, the true causes of the euro crisis, and s- since then I've never stopped studying, really. Um, so that's that's how it all started.
3: And during those seven during the last five to six years you've been based in Italy as your primary kind of focus of your journalistic work is in Italy or is it have you been traveling more widely and writing from a variety of different places?
0: I've been living in Italy most of the time except for the year that I spent in Australia working with Bill Mitchell um, but, my, but I've always written about uh, sort of European issues. I mostly write I've almost always, mostly written in in English language. Um, so my focus has always been sort of uh, uh, continent wide, um, even though I've pretty much always been based in, in Italy.
3: When so, this was a few this was a few um, months back at the launch of your um, your second your second book, which was launched in this fantastic venue in London, which hmm. was a old Unitarian chapel where Mary Wallenstonecraft used to worship along with Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's a fantastic tourist landmark for anyone who's listening incidentally and happens to visit London. Um, And it was there that when there was like behind me, when I was sitting in in the pews of the chapel, listening to the introduction to your second book, there was this bunch of um, very well-dressed kind of good looking Mediterranean people behind me who were taking lots of photos all the time. And, I was thinking you know, and I was wondering who they were and what's going on. And um, afterwards, then I spoke to them, and it turns out that they were all involved with, they were all involved with a political movement, of which you are involved with too, and the left-wing Italian anti-European movement. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Right. So, um, so the movement's called a uh, Senso Comune, which translates as Common Sense. Um, now, just to get that out of the way, we like to stress the fact that it's not a left-wing movement, um, but rather a progressive populist movement. And, um, and we also like to stress that we're not anti-European, but it's Europe that's against us. Um, but, um, the reasons are essentially, uh, the reasons for not describing ourselves as a, uh, left-wing movement, are uh, manyfold. Uh, one is of a more general nature and it's kind of based on a notion popularized by, uh, uh, political theorists such as Laclau, that in general, in contemporary advanced capitalist societies, um, the left right uh, dichotomy, um, at least in terms of the people, uh, people's approach to politics, is becoming increasingly uh, irrelevant uh, for reasons that go from fragmentation of uh, class to the atomization of society and, and so on, and has been replaced by new fault lines, uh, what can be described as populist borderlines, such as people versus uh, the people versus the elites, the outsiders versus the insiders, uh, the national level versus the global level, um, and that therefore today any hegemonic battle uh, has to be fought on that terrain, um, and that therefore any emancipatory project, uh, in the classic left sense of the word, has to be declined in populist um, terms today. So populism today has a bad rep. But in our opinion, that is largely due to the fact that right-wing and uh, reactionary forces have been um, quicker to adapt to these changes in society, in a way. But it needn't be that way, in our opinion. Um, We believe that left-wing populism is uh, not only possible, but absolutely necessary. Um, So this is a general consideration, which I think to varying degrees uh, applies to all Western countries. Um, And then uh, second order of considerations is uh, more concerned with Italy's specific situation, uh, and that is one in which the word left has become practically unusable in political terms for a number of reasons, um, uh, beginning with the fact that the, the word left itself has pretty much lost all meaning uh, and is thus almost, uh, uh, yeah, as I said, unusable in political terms. Uh, when a situation in Italy where neoliberal centrists, such as Matteo Renzi, all the way to allegedly radical left antagonist formations, such as the recently formed party, Potera Popolo, or Power to the People, they all define themselves and are perceived by uh, um, by voters as, as, as being leftists. And so the signifier has really lost pretty much all significance, and therefore, in our opinion, any political um, use. Um, so this means that the overwhelming majority of the population, really, today's, today identify the left with the uh, you know the, the people that vote for the PD, because I mean the PD Democratic Party, um, which is, as I said, you know, a neoliberal centrist party, is today what most people identify the left with, and so they have, and they identify the left with the people that vote for the PD, which is mostly um, uh, upper middle class uh, urbanite people and uh, old pensioners that used to vote for the Communist Party. Uh, there are also historical reasons for people to be. Um, um, disillusioned with the left in Italy, Uh, the Italian post-communist left is largely responsible for the neoliberal shock doctrine policies of the 1990s so the fire cell privatizations, the massive dismantling of the public industry apparatus, the embrace of the euro and so on and so forth Uh, and this is tied to uh, another problem which is the kind of ideological regression that the post-communist left has undergone over the past 20 years which has led it to pretty much embrace the neoliberal orthodoxy um, hook, line, and sinker, uh, I would say, which means that there are actually very few people on the political left with which you can actually build a true anti, uh, an effective anti-neoliberal movement. Um, and this is, a true, uh, is true as much for the center-left as it is for the so-called radical left. Uh, and so although these formations differ in terms of rhetoric, in fact, they share many of the underlying uh, ideological assumptions, uh, such as the skepticism, if not the outright hostility, towards the notion of the nation state and national sovereignty, which is often equated with nationalism. Uh, The the idea of the inevitability of the current configuration of uh, capitalist globalization, which is considered to be the outcome of um, sort of irresistible capitalist dynamics rather than explicit political choices which could be reversed. Uh, the notion that the only terrain where it's worth fighting a political battle is the European one, and I'm sure we'll come back to this issue. And so for all these reasons, we come to the conclusion that for the left in the traditional understanding of the word, that the left in the traditional understanding of the word in Italy is pretty much dead, and will remain so for quite some time, uh, I think. However, left-wing populism, so a, a political approach that is able to speak to people who don't traditionally identify with the left, but might positively respond to political proposals that are part of the left baggage, so increased state protection, increased welfare, and so on. Um, such a project might actually stand a chance. And so, in this sense, I think we have a lot to learn from the experience of the um, Five Star Movement. And as you mentioned, yes, we have a very critical um, attitude towards the European Union, which we consider to be uh, uh, fundamentally incompatible with any um, uh, national uh, emancipatory project or. Uh, Progressive emancipatory policies, more in general.
3: So when we get to, well, I mean, talk a bit more about the European Union in a moment. But I just wanted to push you a little more on the failure and defeat of the left in Italy and how that changes, um, how that changes political orientation. Because you say that you, it's. I mean, it seems to me you've made effectively the case for branding. You're saying it's impossible to brand traditional left wing concerns as leftist. Because that just repulses the voters, the electorate, and Italian citizens. But then, so say if you but if you succeeded in drawing them in, then you would surely just um introduce them to ideas that are, if they became familiar with your ideas and supported them, they would you would obviously see them as leftist and you'd promote them as leftist. In which case wouldn't they be led to ask, well, why didn't you front this? you know, why? Um. Why package it or brand it in this way? That's not explicitly, self-consciously, and openly leftist. Isn't there a risk? I guess that um, you end up appearing cynical and manipulative.
0: Well, um, you know, you could argue that there's that possibility. You know, and one would deal with that. You know, uh, if we were to uh, to reach that point. Um, but I think, look, we're already seeing. Uh, we already see today, um, sort of uh, reactionary right wing. Uh, you know. Parties that are considered to be right-wing that are effectively employing um, left-wing uh, rhetoric and left-wing policies without describing them as such. And so, for example, in Italy, the Northern League, uh, you know, built uh, a lot of its campaign on the um, repulsion of the Fortnero Law, which essentially lowered the, uh, um, uh, sorry, um, uh, higher the retirement age and essentially cut back pensions. So, you know, the promise for... Uh, lower retirement age and higher pensions, uh, which was historically uh, one of uh, a left wing battle cry, you know, was taken up by the the Northern League with um, quite some success. And even a five star movement, uh, you know, is effectively offering, um, responding to what is a demand for greater um, social welfare, greater social protection, um, greater income protection from the state. Again, things that, you know, historically the left stood for. But, you know, both these parties uh, would not be considered uh, leftist and, you know, have, of course, shied away from describing themselves in that way. I mean, the Le- of course, the Northern League comes from a totally different tradition. But um, the Five Star Movement, there was a point where the Five Star Movement could have, you know, refashioned itself, you know, uh, in a more sort of traditional left-wing uh, party. But uh, I think it was very smart not to do that uh, because they understood that today... Um, that you know that that cleavage, the left-right cleavage in Italy, doesn't really uh, doesn't really mean much to people, and so they they understood quite clearly that um, you know it really is a kind of a post-ideological electorate in that sense, and so uh, you know I think nowadays what what counts is focusing on on the policies and not focusing on the identity that you give yourself, um, because you know people don't vote based on identity, uh, especially not in Italy, and so. Um, whether at some point people would realize that, you know, what they've asked for was, you know, actually a fundamentally left-wing uh, policy. Uh, I think that's something that could be dealt with uh, when when the time comes. I think the most important thing is that now people want concrete um, uh, concrete um, uh, action. Uh, so, you know, that, that's what they're going to vote for. They vote for concrete proposals, and that's what a uh, progressive um, movement should focus on, not uh- on not identity.
1: Thomas, um, I, this is Alex here. Hi. Um, I, I find that kind of a fairly compelling, um, account or proposal. And I, f- I find it interesting that, uh, you should be endorsing of, of the label populist, even if you don't, might, might not use that as a kind of in, in political marketing. Um, oh, we- it, or do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: we're trying to re-signify the word populism in a positive sense.
1: That and 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 that's and that's fair enough. I mean, I'm I'm struck by the way in which populism is uh, used across the political spectrum to mean any variety of things, and ends up saying more, I think, about the user of the term than its object. Um, and I. I and at the end of the day, it means anybody who dissents from the establishment, from the mainstream, from elite technocracy, from neoliberalism—however you wish to characterize it—and um, and so maybe it it really all it signifies to us is that populism means anyone who is political in the most basic, primary sense. Um, so, in in that regard, I would I would totally endorse that.
0: Yes, we are. Uh, yes, the, the choice to uh, explicitly uh, sort of reappropriate the word um populism and try to resignify it uh now of course that's something that probably wouldn't work on the on the sort of, uh, wider market uh but at the moment of course uh, at the beginning of the movement uh as i said even though uh we're not branding the movement as a left wing movement uh a lot of us come from that tradition and of course you know in the initial phases uh of the movement you know we were mostly appealing to people that uh that did that did come from that tradition
1: right uh, yeah so, and so, I mean, I, I guess what I'm, what I was wanting to ask and, and work towards was the idea that, you know, when you look at populists, especially the nearer they get to power. And, and of course, um, you know, that you nearly had a, a kind of a, a double populist alliance, uh, in government in Italy, um, <laughs> until a few days ago, um, that they're not, in terms in actual policy terms, they rarely seem to be particularly distinctive as, uh, from the mainstream parties. Uh, when it comes to the concrete or the more key aspects of of economic policy, they don't really have many significantly different proposals. Which really uh, makes the left populist stand out in actually genuinely having a, a point of contention and conflict with um, the establishment.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's true uh, up to a certain point. Um, I mean, if you look at the, uh, uh, the, as I said, you know, I mean, there are elements of the uh, five-star program and Liga program that, you know, effectively do break away. I mean, of course, they're, they're, they're far from being uh, sort of a left-wing agenda, but they do break with what have been established in politics in years for uh, for quite some time. Um, now, whether they would actually be able to, uh, whether they actually even want to implement those policies is a, is a different matter. But in fact, I mean, uh, you know, people voted for them also because they were perceived as proposing, um, you know, true alternatives. And so if you look at the Five Movement, I mean, they garnered a lot of votes uh, among uh, sort of precarious workers and uh, especially um, unemployed workers. Uh, and that's because, you know, I mean, that, that sort of pseudo basic income proposal, is, which is actually just mm. an unemployment benefit scheme and quite a pernicious one uh, for that. But it, of course, it's perceived as being uh, better than nothing, which is what the establishment really has uh, offered them uh, all throughout the crisis. And so it's quite understandable that they responded to that, you know, to that um, uh, offer of, uh, of a sort of pseudo guaranteed income. Uh, and the same goes for uh, the Northern League. I mean, uh, You know, they mostly got got their votes from small and medium business owners uh, up north who essentially want to pay uh, uh, less taxes, and uh, hence their proposal for flat tax. Now, that's quite a regressive um, proposal, but considering that part of the austerity packages that we've seen in recent years haven't just been on the spending side, so cutbacks in public spending, but have also um, actually to a larger degree in Italy been on the uh, revenue side, so higher taxes. Um, So, you know, I mean, offering businesses and, uh, you know, lower taxes is also quite a break, you know, with with what most people have seen in Mm -hmm. recent years. Um, And I think even if you look outside of Italy, uh, you know, um, for example, uh, Marine Le Pen's proposal uh, in terms of labour market reform was, I would say, you know, um, quite left. I mean, she was essentially proposing a rollback of the uh, neoliberal labour market reforms that have been introduced in recent years in France. And kind of returning to a more uh, protected labour market. Um, again, that would have been uh, a serious break, you know, with the with the trend that we've seen in France in decades, you know, which has been towards uh, further liberalisation as elsewhere of the labour market. And uh, and again, what could be described as quite a uh, quite a left wing proposal. Um, and I think even if you look at Trump, um, you know, I mean, it's not the fact that people in uh, in you know sort of, sort of areas hit by deindustrialization uh, uh, tradition, even traditionally democratic voters, uh, hit by the industrialization and unemployment voters to Trump, uh, because of his proposals for, you know, re-internalizing production and bringing, uh, companies back to the U S. Um, and a promise on which he's, you know, partially actually, uh, um, lived up to, uh, again, you know, I mean, these are, I mean, that, that's quite a serious break with establishment politics. I mean, all all over the West, but especially in the U.S., you know, we've been hearing for years that delocalization is just a fact of life which governments can't do nothing about. And then here come, Trump comes along and, you know, pretty much overnight forces, uh, you know, an automobile company to to, to relocate its plans to build a plant in Mexico to the U.S. And so, um, um, you know, again, I mean, all these policies are ambiguous, but uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying that, that that they, you know, that there is no break with the establishment there. I mean, I think there are some of these proposals do go against uh, establishment politics. Of course, they are far cry from, uh, you know, an, a real radical alternative program to neoliberalism. But um, I think, you know, they they are offering some demand for a rollback. Uh, so they are sort of responding to what is a demand. For a rollback of uh, sort of the extreme neoliberal policies that we've seen in in recent years, <clears throat> decades.
3: I, I just wanted, so I wanted to push this question about policy a bit further. Could you tell us a bit more about the policies of your political grouping and how they might differ from um, other groups on, as you characterise as the populist left?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, what's essentially um, uh, lacking, for example, from both the Lega's program and the Five Star Movement's program is a, um, a serious serious agenda for labor. I mean, Lega, you know, ha- hardly touches upon the issue of uh, you know the sort of, uh, extreme levels of unemployment and unemployment that we see in Italy. And uh, the only solution the Five Star has to that is to um, essentially give unemployed people, um, you know, a small, uh, a small guaranteed income. Uh, up to a certain period. And so none of these, I mean, I think what, what you could argue is that none of these parties are addressing the uh, sort of fundamental root causes of uh, of unemployment, uh, which is essentially a lack of jobs. And so no one is offering, uh, no one is offering jobs. I mean, I think that's, that's astonishing, considering that, you know, there's, there's a huge demand for that. Uh, of course, if you offer someone who's got nothing uh, income instead of a job, he'll take that because it's better than nothing. But I think all studies and polls show that people want to work. They want to feel uh, to be productive members of society, and so I think it's um, it's astonishing that even on the left, uh, we see uh, relatively few proposals that address this. Uh, not just not just in Italy, um, although things. Uh, so what but is we, this?
3: Is this the gap that you're seeking to fill politically within Italy itself?
0: I think that's one. Uh, I think that's one gap where uh, there's. There's one gap where you can where, where you can build consensus. I think people have been uh, told that unemployment is an and sort of end of jobs is an inevitable fact of modern capitalism, and you know we constantly read articles in the mainstream press and financial press about that. But in fact, that's not true. I mean, unemployment is largely the result of the kind of economic policies that have been pursued in recent um, in recent years, and, uh, and moreover, no one um, you know questions the idea that only the private sector can provide jobs. And so a notion that was, uh, you know, uh, quite uh, common uh, up to a few decades ago, and that is that the state can play a crucial role in providing uh, uh, useful and productive jobs to people, has essentially did a, it has pretty much disappeared from um, from the political agenda. And so uh, one of our main proposals is a, um, a guaranteed job scheme where the government would, uh, uh, over time, uh, employ uh, anyone that's looking for a job um and um and often not just an income but a job and there's if you take a place like italy uh there's a huge amount of uh of jobs that need done. and so uh the state could of course fill that gap it could you know uh it could bernie sanders in the u.s for example uh looks like he's going to endorse a uh, federal uh, guaranteed job scheme and uh I think that's a very interesting development and uh there was a recent article in The Guardian, too, uh, backing a uh, guaranteed uh, uh, government-guaranteed job scheme. Uh, and so I think, you know, the tide is changing there. Uh, but I think that in the Italian case, that's, that's a gap that really no one is filling. And, uh, and I think there's a, lot that, um, sort of, there's a lot of consensus to build built on the notion that, you know, uh, jobs are not dead. Uh, and that, you know, um, there's no reason for accepting uh, unemployment as an, an inevitable fact of life. In fact, it's a result of political choices, and there's not even any reason for settling simply for a uh, for a guaranteed income.
3: I want to, so I want to get into the Jacobin piece because mm-hmm. we've been talking about the um, we've been talking about the national level focus, Italy and other um, comparative political disruptions in other major Western states. But obviously, a lot of this is bound up with structures that are transnational, and that's most obviously true in the European Union. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us then a little bit about this Jacobin piece that caused such controversy?
0: Right, uh, the infamous Jacobin article. Um, Well, look, I mean, I was expecting some criticism, uh, but nothing on the scale of what we we witnessed. Uh, I mean, you had people calling for a boycott of the magazine, uh, accusing us of siding with uh, Uh, Joe Cox murder, uh, murderer being on a payroll of UKIP or the Russians, and you you name it. Uh, Although interestingly, almost no one, uh, except for a a decent criticism that was later published uh, in Jacobin, uh, no one engaged, pretty much no one engaged with the issues that we raised in the piece. Uh, I mean, the piece simply presented what we consider to be some rather irrefutable facts, um, such as the fact that all official uh, pre-vote forecasts, which essentially predicted catastrophic economic consequences in the case of a leave vote uh, were were proven wrong and that in fact the British economy, despite all its structural problems which have very little to do with Brexit, is seeing signs of improvement. That the single currency, that the single market um, didn't boost uh, intra-European exports or productivity or per capita growth growth, or even British exports or per capita growth um, for that matter. Uh, which have largely stagnate, stagnated since the introduction of the single currency. Um, we simply stated that Britain has uh, been diversifying its exports for many years, and so the notion that if it were to exit the EU, it would fall back into autarky is largely unfounded. And so um, <clears throat> and, um, in fact, we argued that leaving the EU could actually open up margins for a uh, future Corbyn-led government to uh, implement policies that would be... Uh, uh, almost impossible to implement within the EU, in my opinion. Uh, And so the fact that no one challenged our assumptions simply resorted to character assassination and absurd claims, um, I think uh, um, really has to do with the fact that, I mean, really show that pro-Europeanism is really is an ideology, a kind of collective delusion. And just like a delusional or schizophrenic individual who... uh, uh, who tends to react with denial or anger when confronted with reality. Then the same goes for social groups, um, and which have a hard time being confronted with facts that essentially contradict everything they've ever been told, um, in this case about the European Union and Brexit. Uh, and of course there's also a problem of what in economics we refer to as uh, you know, sunken costs. So if you spend much of your life arguing how great the EU is, it's hard to backtrack on that without losing face. Um, and so I think this relates really to, um, you know, to, to the pro-European uh, ideology more in, uh, more in general. And it's also something I experienced uh, in, in, my own personal, uh, in my own personal life, um, because, as you mentioned, I, I, I kind of uh, come from that tradition. Um, and so even though I've never subscribed to the kind of uber idealism, of uh, Euro federalism. I used to be much more optimistic about the chances of reforming Europe in a progressive direction. and much more skeptic with regard to nation-based uh, responses to the Euro crisis. And uh, I think that's because I, like so many leftists of my generation, uh, are some of the anti-globalization movement of the late 90s and early 2000s. And so I grew up now reading authors such as Tony Negri and others uh, arguing that the nation-state is dead and intrinsically reactionary, that the only level at which it makes sense to try to achieve change is the European level, if not the global level, and uh, and so on and so forth, and so on. Doing all this um, took some time, so uh, and a good amount of self-criticism. So I know how hard it can be to. Uh, so- yeah
2: go ahead. Yeah no so um I guess one of the questions is since this is the this isn't the first time the Jacobin has published a Eurosceptic piece what do you think about the piece that you um that you had published um got people so annoyed was it a question of timing or what well, I mean what, what do you make of that the causes of that um often quite personal attacks that you received
3: Um
0: well I think it wasn't s- I don't think it was so much a timing as much as the fact that it focused on on Brexit and on the UK, um, because I I would say that oh you know in, throughout the crisis uh, in continental Europe and especially eurozone countries um, the left slowly very slowly but uh, the left is slowly waking up to the reality of the European Union and especially of the European Monetary Union. Uh, because of the disastrous consequences that the, the you know that the, the, the euro has had on uh, on um, eurozone countries, especially countries of the periphery, uh, and so most I think most of the previous uh, articles that Jacobin has published uh, have been uh, focused on the euro more than on the EU itself, and so I think that's mm. that's considered. Now to be uh, sort of more, uh, it's still quite controversial uh, in traditional left-wing circles, uh, especially in Italy, uh, for example. Um, But I would say it's becoming less and less, or more and more accepted um, that you know the euro doesn't work, and so you know now talking about you know uh, exiting the euro uh, is not is not a complete taboo anymore as it used to be up to a few years ago. Um, But I think in the in the UK context, that's that's different. Of course, the country is not in the in the eurozone, and uh, and uh, and so first of all, we have this uh, this idea that one thing is the eurozone, and then you have the European Union, which is a completely different thing. Uh, now, although of course being in the eurozone is much worse than simply being in the European Union, but of course the European the eurozone is sort of an extension of the European Union, and the European Union is uh, is, uh, is is within is entirely within a paradigm. Of the of the eurozone so uh it's, it's really hard to separate um, separate two but uh, in left-wing discussions the two often consider two entirely different things now even those that that would agree that the eurozone uh, is is a, is a failure uh, very few people would go as far as saying that the European Union itself is um, is a failure uh, and I think that was very apparent in the, in, the, in the brexit debate uh, where i think most people uh, even on the left and um, have been uh, you know have, have been told that you know the european union is a largely positive project and so, uh, so
2: why, why why do you think this is on on the british left that people are so reluctant to um to say that the eu has been a has been a failure or to say that the eu separately from the eurozone is mm-hmm. is something negative
3: well i, I want that... to add can i just before you answer thomas i want to add to that as well because something that struck me was the so many of the responses, the hostile responses, came from America to the Jacobin piece. I mean, it's an American magazine, and a lot of the kind of the really visceral negativity seemed to me to be American readers, um, American leftists who who were so shocked by the fact that Jacobin published this. Um so I was wondering if you could maybe, because that's a bit more counterintuitive. What you said just now is about the people being anti-Euro, but pro-European Union is very interesting and it rings very true. But, I, you know, it's a bit more puzzling on the other side of the Atlantic why people are so viscerally hostile to Brexit. Um, well, to
0: answer the first question, um, I think that, I mean... It's. Uh, I think there are similarities with the Italian case, and so um, if over the bre- during the Brexit debate, um, we often we often heard this argument that the EU is a um, a positive external constraint for the UK, and so the sort of rule of law embedded uh, and the regulations and uh, social norms embedded within the European Union. So in terms of environmental laws and even labour laws and the. In the, in the in the case of the UK um, debate, um, were presented as being positive constraints for the British political system. So some so uh, constraints that uh, essentially uh, um, prevent Britain the country from becoming a kind of you know, Tory-led uh, neoliberal dystopia. Um, and this argument sounds you know very true. In the Italian case, we uh, you know I think the same goes for. Mediterranean countries in general, we often hear uh, this argument: uh, our political classes uh, are so corrupt, are so inefficient that you know, as bad as the European Union and eurozone may be, it still you know, uh, it still holds our political leaders back uh, in a way and prevents them from implementing uh, even worse policies than the ones coming from the European Union. And uh, well, a I find our argument to be uh, largely unfounded. I mean, the notion that that, was, that, that we heard a lot in the in the Brexit debate, for example, that um, you know the European Union protects workers is 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 uh, and prevents uh, you know Theresa May and a you know Tory government from uh, a further deregulated labour market. Uh, now that might be true in the UK case, but to actually argue that labour the, the European Union uh, defends labour is is absurd because I mean the whole architecture of the European Union, especially the uh, the eurozone, has been geared towards. Uh, Devaluing and and, and deregulating uh, labour markets, and you know we've seen this clearly, especially throughout the crisis uh, in Greece and Italy, and uh, in all crisis-struck countries, uh, where the European Union has been strongly pushing for uh, deregulation of labour markets and um, wage compression, and so on and so forth. And so um, and so, I think you know there's a there's there's a fundamental distrust in the capacity of the British people to um, uh, to uh, overcome these policies by themselves through the normal democratic process and so that you need some external institution um, holding your own le- your own elected leaders back um, but I think this uh, betrays a, you know a, a worrying um, distrust in democracy and in, uh, and in politics and it has to do I think with this, pro- with this process of depoliticization that we, um, that we've been in you know, for, for, for decades now um, where sorry go
1: ahead yeah th- thomas i wanted to ask you um a question which is related to this uh really about differing perceptions of the eu in the european south versus in britain for example um and i think in in the debate in italy i mean i in the early 90s for example talking about eu and and the maastricht Treaty was that um europeanization of of the economy of the state would be uh, a way of becoming a modern country would be a way of even becoming a normal country. And then um, reading yours and Bill Mitchell's book, it, 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 you also make reference to this in France, that this was the debate in the 80s and um, under Mitterrand, that there was also this perception that, um, you know, teaming up with, with, uh, under kind of German leadership, a, a kind of a new Europe would be a way of making France a normal country or modernizing it. Um, and I don't know if that plays out in the same way in the UK, but there's a similar sense of the EU as embodying ipso facto cosmopolitanism, um, away from our, our old kind of corrupt, um, elites, basically. Um, do you, do you see a sort of similarity in perceptions or do you think there's a difference um, in the way that EU comes to, be, comes to represent something far greater than itself um, in Italy or in France or in Britain?
0: Well, I mean, no, I think it's quite different in the sense that in, uh, in Italy and France and elsewhere, um, in a way, uh, sort of the European Union, the neoliberalism embedded in the European Union was uh, was was acknowledged, I would say, but was presented as a uh, sort of necessary evil, as you mentioned, to modernize uh, these countries and bring them into the collective of uh, you know civilized countries uh, by overcoming this excessively uh, deregist and state led um, economies and and so on and so forth. And so um, I think in in which is very different from what we saw in the British case, where, in fact, the EU was presented as a uh, progressive institution uh, holding back the country's own neoliberal leaders. And uh, I think, of course, that also has to do uh, with the fact that uh, neoliberalism, neoliberalism politically took hold in Britain uh, in a sort of manifest man- manner before, uh, before other countries. And so uh, I guess people... Um, you know, came to uh, came to accept the idea that the European Union was uh, an alter- an alternative this, a progressive alternative to uh, this to, to neoliberalism, and so that that's quite a different narrative than the one we heard in uh, in southern in Italy, for example, where uh, neoliberalism, the neoliberalism embedded embedded in the European Union, was presented as a necessary alternative to the uh, sort of excessively socialist uh, policies of um, of these countries. So it's quite a different narrative, and I, th- I think it might explain also um, the reaction to um, the reaction on the left to brexit. Uh, so then perhaps more than anywhere else, uh, the eu is uh, is perceived as a um, progressive um, progressive institution, I think, more than anywhere mm-hmm. else in the continent. Um, I think that has to do with uh, internal political developments in in the UK, uh, and that is you know I mean the sort of extreme neoliberalism that a country experienced. Um, uh, you know, from ta- Thatcher onwards, uh, and, and in fact, I mean, it's it's factually true that uh, you know, I mean, the EU probably prevented uh, Thatcher from deregulating labour markets uh, even more. Um, but the notion that you know, uh, this is the only thing uh, sort of protecting protecting workers, and that uh, you can actually not only defend those institutions. Actually, even improve um, workers' rights simply through the British democratic process uh, is um, that's that's more worrying. Um, Mm. Now, I mean, I think you know, Corbyn, in a way, could be could be changing the tide in that um, in that respect. You know, and of course, you've also had a lack of a true left alternative um, in the UK, like elsewhere, for a very long time, and so it's understandable that people uh, almost came to see uh, neoliberalism and uh, uh, right-wing policies and deregulation and privatisation as an inevitable trend, because there was no, way, no one there uh, stopping, um, stopping these developments.
3: On the question of economic policy, we mentioned at the start your collaboration with Bill Mitchell, and you talked about how you had to develop and redevelop your own um knowledge and education and economics and bill mitchell is um most well known i think this is correct i think this is right and correct me if i'm wrong he's most well known as the theoretical innovator of modern monetary theory um could you tell us a little bit about modern monetary theory
0: okay so um modern monetary theory essentially uh it's not a political ideology it's a sorry it's something that offers a theoretical framework for understanding how monetarily sovereign countries, that's countries that issue their, their own currencies, uh, how these countries work. And uh, understanding that is crucial because powers um, that be, if uh, passing that expression, are today largely able to just- justify policies that are not in the interest of the majority of the population by exploiting and peddling, in fact, a completely false understanding of, um, of how the economy works. And so austerity is an obvious example. Most people don't like austerity, um, but they they've come to accept it because they've been told for years that their governments are running out of money, and these governments have been running out of money because they ran excessive deficits, uh, which have resulted in a public debt that has become unsustainable. Um, at which point, the government has a uh, little choice but to either pursue austerity or default. Uh, and of course, no one likes uh, uh, to default uh, because you immediately think of Argentina in two thousand and one and reason, and so on and so forth, and so austerity is seen by many as a sort of necessary evil. Uh, and, and even if default is avoided, uh, it's said that the cost of servicing the debt will be unaffordable for future generations. And so you have you know uh, emotional appeals to the need to uh, uh, to sacrifice our needs today, the, in the interests of our you know sons and daughters and nephews and so on and so forth. Um, and so. Um, uh, and so, for this reason, we're constantly told in the media that we need to balance the balance, that a government needs to balance its books, uh, keep its fiscal house in order, and learn to live within its means. Uh, and then of course, you have left-wing versions of this argument, which claim that since austerity policies tend to hit the weakest members of society the hardest, it's also in the interest of workers and citizens for governments to avoid running um, excessive deficits and accumulating excessive debt. And I would say, undergirding this whole argument, is the assumption that governments are uh, just like you know ordinary people, just like households, are revenue constrained, that that they need to fund their expenses either through taxes or through debt. And, you know, this is something that, you know, we call the household budget analogy. And it's a very powerful narrative because it appeals to our sort of intuitive everyday understanding of economics. And so as individuals and households, we know that we have to earn money before we can spend. Uh, Of course, we can run into debt for a while, but at some point we'll have to, uh, you know, pursue, pursue austerity. Uh, because we know we have to finance every penny we spend and we can literally run out of money. Um, now, the problem with the argument is that government, governments, government finances uh, have very little to do with the functioning of our own finances as citizens and business owners. Um, and, and that's because we, you know, since 1971, since the end of the Bretton Woods system, we live in a world of so-called fiat currencies, from the Latin word fiat, which means it shall be, um, where the value of our currencies is not underpinned by uh, gold or any other metal, uh, as was the case under the gold standard and then the Bretton Woods system, uh, their value is essentially claimed by um, decree. So the government announces that a coin is worth a pound, and, and, and that's it. You know, I mean, if you bring the coin to the central bank, you're not going to get anything in exchange for it. And so a crucial consequence of this is that uh, uh, currency issuing governments, uh, in fact, don't need to fund their spending from a technical point of view. They don't need to raise uh, money through taxes before they can spend. Because they can create the money out of thin air. And in fact, they do this on a daily basis, for example, through the policies of quantitative easing. um, uh, Where, you know, central banks uh, have been printing uh, trillions of uh, pounds and euros and dollars ever since the financial crisis. And of course, this money is created out of nowhere. Uh, And of course, uh, this also means that countries can never be...
3: So so two issues then related to that. So just to develop to um, develop this point about MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, further. So the usual um, or the consensus is that quantitative easing hasn't been particularly effective. So what's the difference then with um, what would be the kind of policy difference of MMT? If the idea is that to take to fully realize the advantages of fiat money, um, Mm -hmm. What's, you know, what, what's the payoff that hasn't, delivered, hasn't been delivered through quantitative easing? And the other side of it is also is the reason that governments have been loath to print money, generally speaking, is because of the fears of inflation. Um, so how do you get around the problem of inflation with MMT? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, quantitative easing uh, hasn't worked because it's essentially a, a monetary policy. It's not a fiscal policy. So uh, central banks have been printing all this money, but then you know giving it away to financial markets and to essentially prop up uh, financial markets, you know, and keep 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 all these zombie banks uh, uh, living. So uh, it hasn't worked because all the money has gone into financial markets, uh, which have then used that money to uh, further speculate uh, on financial markets themselves, and so very little of that money has actually uh, you know trickled down to the uh, to the real economy. Uh, and that's because, you know, uh, uh, you know they, 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 banks haven't then used that money to lend out to, uh, you know, households and businesses, but they've used it largely to speculate um, on financial markets. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, that, that, that's why quantitative easing hasn't worked. Now, uh, MMT doesn't um, proposes to use the powers that fiat money gives you um, to empower fiscal policy. And so you, would, you, you wouldn't use, you wouldn't print all this money and give it away to financial markets. You would print, in fact, much less money, um, but you would use it to, uh, to, um, to uh, inject that in the real economy. So you would use that to expand employment, to provide high-level welfare, uh, high-level infrastructure, infrastructure, generally for improving the lives of citizens. Um, and and then the point to understand is that governments have much more leeway to do that than we're actually told. Uh, in fact, you know, I mean, governments have huge spending space to provide employment, to provide welfare, and they're not using that for political reasons. And so we have to be very careful not to equate um, the kind of fiscal policies that uh, MMT proposes um, with quantitative easing. They're two very different things, even though they, they're, they're both based on sort of a, a base money um, creation. Um, I think the political point of MMT is that money is a public good. And should be administered by democratic institutions in the public interest, and not by unaccountable uh, technocratic institutions such as the ECB. Um, so that's one point. On the question of inflation, I mean, I think governments know very well that printing money, so to speak, um, doesn't cause inflation. And in fact, um, you know, we have ample evidence of that. Uh, you know, we, as we've just said, you know, gov- central banks have been printing huge amounts of money uh, through quantitative easing, but you know, inflation is still. Uh, you know, very low in most countries, and in fact, you know, lower than most um, central banks and political leaders would want. Uh, in the case of Europe, you know, the ECB has been well below its two uh, percent inflation target um, for you know almost a decade now, despite you know, like other central banks printing huge amounts of money. And so, I think this in itself clearly disproves the notion that printing money or creating base money is uh, is inflationary. And that's you know, that's this this harks back to the notion of uh, endogenous money. And that's that is uh, the notion that banks uh, don't take money, uh, don't take savers' money that they then lend out to others, or don't need central bank reserves before they can lend out money. Uh, they they the banks themselves create money out of thin air whenever they um, give out a loan, for example. Uh, and so the the. The amount of money that's created by, by banks essentially depends on demand, on the state of the economy. So if the economy is booming, uh, banks will be more than happy happy to give out um, loans and create you know, large amounts of uh, money out of thin air. Uh, but if the economy is not um, is not doing very well, as most western you know, most western economies have been uh, you know, largely stagnated since the. Um, since the financial crisis, they'll have no interest to uh, lend out money, regardless of the uh, amount of reserves that they build up as a result of um, quantitative easing. And so, so just uh, to
3: build, just to build this point um, as clearly as possible for our listeners. I mean, it's implicit in what you're saying, but I want to just draw it out a bit more. So, why is modern money? Why do you think modern monetary theory is so important to, un- to understanding what's wrong with the eurozone?
0: Well, I think a crucial point of uh, MMT is that um, popular sovereignty, democracy, um, requires monetary sovereignty. Uh, And that's because, as a great British economist, uh, Godley wrote in 92, when even the UK was debating whether to enter the Eurozone or not, um, when he wrote that if a country gives up or loses the power to issue its own money, it acquires the status of a local authority or colony. Um, and I think the Eurozone is a clear example of this, of what happens when advanced countries give up their um, their currency sovereignty. And mind you, I mean, the Eurozone is an absolute exception uh, in the entire world in this respect. I mean, there's uh, no other cases of uh, advanced industrial countries giving up their currency sovereignty to a supranational um, central bank, such as the ECB. And what this, what the, the situation this creates, is that uh, you give an enormous amount of power to an unelected, unaccountable institution such as the ECB, um, to essentially use its uh, fiat currency issuing powers, not to um, uh, not to improve the lives of, uh, of citizens, not to improve uh, infrastructure, not to improve the you know welfare, as a uh, currency issuing central bank that coordinates its policies with a government could do. Uh, instead, it uses these powers to impose its own policies on governments. And so we've gone from uh, the notion that central banks should be uh, independent from governments, uh, which is a neoliberal dogma, you know, that's taken hold and took hold in the 1980s. Uh, in the Eurozone, we've gone to a situation where governments are essentially dependent on the central bank. And so we saw this in Greece in 2015, uh, when a central bank cut off its uh, liquidity to Greek banks in order to engineer a financial crisis in a country and bring the Syriza government to um, to heal, and to force it to accept the, a new bailout memorandum. Um, and we so, even saw, we even saw this in Italy in twenty eleven. Uh, you know when Silvio Berlusconi's government was forced to resign and Mario Monti's technocratic government was brought in. Uh, now, even the Financial Times, openly writing that what happened in 2011 is that the ECB, and I quote uh, an article from the Financial Times, forced Segal Verhoeven's going to leave office in favor of unelected Mario Monti by making his to the precondition for further support by the ECB for Italian bonds and banks. And so I think so this I'm, is how, what Lingardi was saying about a country uh, that gives up its uh, currency sovereignty, becoming uh, a colony, essentially. I want
3: to, I want to, talk about we want to talk a bit more about um uh, given that there's just been another soft coup in italy linked yeah. to um threats from the financial markets and the euro will we want to talk about that but just before that before we talk about your predictions for um italian politics i wanted to ask about a or rather bring in george to ask a bit about brexit and italian euro skepticism george do you want to ask me mm-hmm. the question
2: yeah, so I guess there's a a big question here um, from, from those of us in, in the UK, which is, as an Italian Eurosceptic, can you tell us a bit what you about what you'd like to see from Brexit? How, I guess, how important do you think that Brexit is to leftist Eurosceptics in the EU more widely? Well, I mean, uh, you know, we've mostly,
0: mostly been talking about the economics of Brexit um, until now, and uh, that's what the... Jacobian article is about. Um, but I would say, from a political standpoint, Brexit is uh, is also very important for periphery countries such as mine. Um, but of course, the same could be said for uh, Spain, Greece and other countries that are locked into this disastrous uh, Euro system and suffering as a result of it. Um, and that's because it's it's increasingly clear from uh, electoral outcomes you know just look at Italy uh, and opinion polls that support for euro countries is falling uh, dramatically in uh, in periphery countries uh, especially in Italy um, however you know this idea that there is no alternative uh, Tina is still holding back most people from sort of taking the next logical step and that is to accept that at this point the uh, the best option in fact the only option option for countries that want to uh, you know um, uh, regain their, um, their sovereignty and independence and uh, be able to implement um, pro- so socially um, um, beneficial policies is to exit the eurozone uh, unilaterally, if necessary as costly as that might, as that might be in the short term. Um, and the reason people are still um, uh, weary to do that is because the psychological terrorism on the alleged impacts of an exit um, continue to hold a lot of sway in the debate, just like they did over Brexit. And uh, I think it's not um, unreasonable to say that today uh, fear is really the only thing that is keeping the Eurozone together. Uh, and I think in this sense, Brexit would be um, very useful for those f- like, like us arguing for, uh, for example, the need for to exit the euro to expose um, the sort of uh, the pro-EU fear among for the propaganda that it really is. Um, in this sense, you know, um, for, for Britain to go ahead with Brexit, uh, and for the world to be shown that none of the disastrous consequences that were uh, predicted um, have occurred, and I and I, I profoundly believe that they wouldn't occur, um, I think would be very helpful in uh, in helping people overcome their own TINA uh, narrative at home. Um, by so the same token, to- if TINA prevails in the UK, it would it would be a very hard blow to uh, you know sovereignists. Uh, Left sovereignists in countries such as mine, you know, because it would reinforce the notion that there really is no alternative, no alternative to the European Union.
3: So, give us your to finish up. Then give us your predictions for what's going to happen in Italy. And just to put our listeners who might have been living under a rock in the last few in the last few days, some of them do, perhaps I don't know. Um, what's happened in Italy is that the president rejected the finance minister that was put forward by the coalition of the Liga and the Five Star Movement. He rejected the finance minister put forward. And as a result, um, the two parties that won the election have been unable to form a government or are not in a position to. Um, There might be latest news from the ground in Rome, which you can tell us about, maybe, Thomas. But give us your predictions, your reading of the situation and how you think Things are going to unfold. What do you think is the most likely scenario?
0: Well, look. I mean, I think at this point, um, the only thing the establishment can do is buy some time. Um, I think what happened in in recent days is uh, is really extremely uh, grave and serious, and is, I would say, almost unprecedented in uh, in, in in sort of modern history of, of democracies. Uh, just to be clear, the president of the republic completely overstepped his mandate. Uh, he, you know, the constitution does not give the president of the republic the right to um, um, uh, block the formation of a government on on an entirely political uh, basis, which is what uh, which is what happened and uh, and which was openly admitted by uh, uh, President Mattarella, who said, you know, I couldn't allow the formation of this government because it was too critical of the euro, um, and so that's you know, I think again, this goes back to really a. Uh, um, the, the notion that you know being in the eurozone essentially was, you know, um, uh, transforms your country into a, into a financial colony. Um, so, in terms of moving forward, it's very hard to. Uh, to this, I mean, to know what will happen now. Apparently, it looks like the Five Star Movement might be willing to uh, accept a government with a different finance minister, while the Liga uh, stands by its position. That it won't um, that it won't uh, enter a government um, with another finance minister from the one they had proposed and which was turned down um, by the government uh, by the president. And so at this point, it's really um, it, it's really hard to see what will um, what will happen. Um, I think that w- what this what Italian establishment is doing is uh, trying to turn this into an all out pro uh, uh, versus anti um, anti euro uh, game, um, and it's it's a gamble. Um, but it's a gamble that might play out, um, you know, it might work for them in the short term. Um, of course, you know, I mean, Lega and Five Star have, um, uh, of course, exploited the ambiguity, you know, vis-a-vis the euro and the European Union uh, to avoid scaring, uh, you know, uh, the moderate electorate. Um, so the, the, the Mattarella's decision to force them to come out and to openly say that they uh, that they want to exit the euro uh, allowing this sort of centrist bloc to present itself as the only thing defending the country from a Euro exit um, is, 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 is a, you know, quite a smart move, I think, and you know, it, it could buy them some more time. But that's what we're talking about, just buying some time. Ultimately, I think what was exposed was a fundamental incompatibility, uh, not just between the Eurozone and uh, you know, acceptable levels of growth and employment in Italy, but also between the Eurozone and um, democracy. Uh, especially, and uh, and people are becoming increasingly aware of that. And um, and I think you know there's uh, you know the, the contradictions have come to the fore. And so at this point, you know, I mean, all the all the establishment can do is, is buy some time and uh, maybe try to uh, suspend uh, um, democracy, you know, as much as as much and as long as they can. But uh, it, it will last forever. Uh, I think you know we're we're witnessing the beginning of the unraveling of the of the eurozone.
3: That's a note, I think, to finish on the contradictions have come to the fore. We love that kind of talk here at Aftabunga <laughs> <Bunga. laughs> so, thanks very much for joining us, Thomas. Thank um, you. That was fantastic. And to readers who are interested in following up on any of the arguments um, that Thomas has made um, with regards to the politics, the political analysis of the Eurozone Um, and also the economics of modern monetary theory, then we would recommend you to check out Thomas's book co-written with Bill Mitchell, which is called Reclaiming the States, Thomas's most recent book.
1: All right, that's it for this week. This episode exceptionally came out on a Thursday rather than our usual Wednesday. Sorry about that one day delay. Next week, we're back also exceptionally on a Thursday when we're chatting to David Adler. You may have caught a recent New York Times piece showing that centrists are the most hostile to democracy, not extremists. Well, that was Adler's research, so we'll be talking to him about that, as well as why the rent is too damn high. And then in two weeks' time, it's our special Geopolitics of the World Cup episode, out right before the first ball is kicked. Catch you later. Bye-bye.